Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we focused on carotid artery disease, which occurs when fatty deposits called plaques clog the blood vessels that deliver blood to the brain and head. The clog increases the risk of stroke. This month, we discuss chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, an umbrella term for lungs with persistent diminished capacity and function caused by other lung-compromising conditions. This report highlights treating, managing, and even slowing the progression of COPD. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay, and we're exploring a condition that's currently the fourth most common cause of death in the U.S., COPD. It has disease in its name, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, after all. But it's an umbrella term as well for other lung diseases, such as emphysema and chronic bronchitis that result in the narrowed airways, mucus buildup, and overall impaired lung function that are the hallmarks of COPD. Sound confusing? Full disclosure, I realized I didn't understand COPD as well as I thought I did when I started looking into this topic, so thankfully... Deborah pulmonologist Dr. Howard Waxman is here to break it all down. There is no single definition of it. Uh, COPD actually encompasses several different kinds of conditions. So it's really more of an umbrella term and not a single diagnosis. Um, It simply means that, um, well, the C in COPD means chronic, so that there is an element of persistence to your symptoms and to the abnormalities on your tests, which would help distinguish it, let's say, from something like asthma, where the symptoms may be intermittent, and in milder cases, you're quite likely to have normal test results. Whereas in COPD, the patients are going to have symptoms either all the time or at least for a substantial portion of the year. The findings that you're going to encounter are things like abnormal breathing tests, where the flow of air in and out of the lungs is diminished. Uh, And that occurs simply because the bronchial passages themselves are narrow. So it's kind of like breathing through a straw all the time. You just can't move air very quickly through a more narrow passageway. Most of the patients uh, are also going to have some element of cough, sputum production, And they're also quite likely to have intermittent flare-ups where they'll have a worsening of shortness of breath, cough, mucus, chest congestion, and so on. Officially, COPD is essentially broken down into either things like emphysema, where the problem occurs because of destruction of lung tissue, or more like a chronic bronchitis where the condition is largely limited to the airways. The net effect is the same, though, in terms of abnormal tests and symptoms. So when you call it an umbrella, you're talking about different diseases that are creating this environment in the lungs. Quite possibly. And the real way to think of it is that COPD as a category can be caused by many different things and may in fact encompass several different diseases. You talk about chronic, the chronic part, acute obstructive pulmonary disease. Is that a thing then? Is that like bad asthma, a bad asthma attack? It can be. Um, Even though asthma is a chronic condition, milder forms of asthma are really going to be associated with normal test results and a pretty normal physical exam in between attacks. And although that might not be the case for more severe forms of asthma, the acute asthma attack, 
I guess is something that you would call acute obstructive airways disease. Yeah. Uh, you can actually even see that in a normal individual without either one of those diagnoses who just has a bronchitis where they have noisy breathing and a lot of wheezing. So you can see similar symptoms, but where the illness itself is temporary. How common is COPD? It depends on where in the country you go and on which social and economic groups you look at. Obviously, there are many millions of people in this country who are affected by it. It is the third most common cause of death, or actually, sadly, it's probably the fourth now because COVID overtook COPD. So the answer is how common? Very common. On the other hand, it is more common in certain categories and in certain subgroups of the population. Lower socioeconomic groups are more severely affected. It's probably a combination of living conditions, occupational factors, and individual behaviors because smoking is much, much more common in lower social and economic groups. So it's not likely to be purely genetic, although there are genetic predisposing factors as well. Then let's get to these causes of COPD specifically. On the top 10 list, number one through seven is going to be smoking. There is no doubt that it is the single most important and most modifiable risk factor for COPD. It probably accounts for 90 plus percent of all cases of obstructive lung disease. That doesn't mean that only 10 percent are going to be related to other factors, but smoking is at least a contributing factor in at least 90% of people. Then there are occupational issues, particulate exposures, certain kinds of aerosol exposures, and then there are pollution factors. It's not really, when it comes to air quality, what people think. So for example, when we had the recent brush fires and you could see the impact of those particles in the air, those are actually large enough to be affecting symptoms but they are not actually a cause of COPD. It's more the very fine, tiny millions of a meter sized particles, which are not visible to the human eye, but which over the long term as pollutants can contribute to COPD. Um, and then there are genetic factors. There's a wide variety of them. For example, uh, cystic fibrosis, although it's commonly thought of as a genetic disease that occurs early in life, it actually has multiple different kinds of variable genes, some of which probably don't show up as clear-cut CF, but which uh, predispose people to chronic airway disease. And then there are certain other mutations that might either contribute to COPD itself, where you will develop it out of nowhere, or which will accelerate your risk if you are a smoker. So a person who shows up with COPD in their 30s or early 40s is much, much more likely to have one of these genetic factors where the smoking was the match that lit the fire, but they were always predisposed. And even without the smoking, that person may have shown up with COPD in their mid-50s, perhaps. So there are a variety of different factors, only some of which people can modify. But smoking is obviously the biggest. What about secondhand smoke? Secondhand smoke is actually something that is very difficult to analyze on an individual level. And it's something that we know on a population level, on a large scale, does have an association with certain diseases. But the problem there is that it's very hard for any given individual to know what's the intensity of exposure, what's the duration of exposure. You know, do they have any other factors in their environment, in their lives, or in their genes that might be contributing as well. The literature on it is actually a little bit more robust, for example, when it comes to lung cancer than it is for COPD. 
And with lung cancer, the best we can say is that your risk of developing lung cancer would be about 1.1 times the risk of a non-exposed person. But when you compare that to the risk in the actual smoker, where it's 17 times higher, it gives you a, a clear sense of just how much more impactful the direct exposure might be. And the same is pretty much true for COPD. It's a little bit like the brush fire example, where it might act as an irritant, it might trigger some symptoms, but it's less likely to actually trigger the disease itself. Not impossible, but less likely. So if you are living in a low-income area in a high-density industrial part of town and the trucks are idling all day picking up unloading mm -hmm. or the factories are spewing whatever, right. that's an environmental situation. Is that a cause or a risk factor for COPD? And am I interpreting yeah. what you've just told us wrong? No, you're not, actually. And it's a perfect example of the idea of correlation and causation being separate things. We don't know if it's a cause. We just do know that they are strongly correlated. And again, it may simply be that for any given individual, you cannot say that that is the cause, although you can certainly say that it contributes to the development. It's also an issue where if one is looking for a single cause, that's a, a not very helpful approach because there are often, especially when it comes to questions of living conditions and exposures, there are often multiple factors involved. Now, if you've had, for whatever reason, weakened lungs, a history of a lot of respiratory infections mm -hmm. um, early on, or, or you're asthmatic, is this putting you at higher risk? All, what yes. are the risk factors then? Actually, the example of the asthmatic is an interesting one because we do know that there are uh, associations between what you might call bronchial reactivity. So if you do a test where you measure someone's lung function, give them an inhaler to use, and you demonstrate an increase in airflow to suggest that there was some bronchial spasm and some narrowing going on, even if those people were not diagnosed as asthmatic, statistically speaking, they are actually more likely to develop COPD later in life. Uh, we also know that undertreatment of asthma is a risk factor for its progression and evolution into one of the forms of COPD. So that's also part of it. The idea of recurrent infections being a risk factor is also important uh, because there is a form of COPD called bronchiectasis, which thankfully we don't see as much anymore because in the modern era where we have available antibiotics that are used more frequently and more freely, people are less likely to have persistent infections that cause long-term lung damage. But that was a very common problem uh, in the pre-antibiotic era, and we're kind of aging out of that, although we still see it. Um, and then there are some of the pediatric infections. So when you talk about children with RSV and bronchiolitis, where lung growth and development may be altered, or again, children in certain kinds of environments where they're exposed to particulates and other pollutants, where that may affect lung growth and development. And again, those may be associated with adult symptoms and uh, limitations. Any vaping connection at this point? It's a little bit early to know because the, the behavior hasn't been entrenched in society for all that long. Also, the industry is not nearly as heavily regulated as the tobacco industry. So there are a couple of brands that actually have gone before the FDA which have been reviewed and analyzed. And I would hate to say that they've been approved from a safety perspective, 
but at least we know that there are no major toxicities associated with them because we did see that early in the development of the technology. Uh, for example, uh, one of the problems that was encountered early in vaping was that you were getting reports of certain forms of acute lung injury, uh, quite severe in fact, and it seemed to be connected in some cases with the use of liquid vitamin E as a solvent in the material. And of course, no one would ever imagine vitamin E to be bad. Well, it's fine if you swallow it, but not so great if you inhale it. So in terms of the products that are included in the liquid, until it gets to the point where it was fully vetted and fully regulated, the jury's kind of going to be out on that. So when you talk about indoor pollution, and not just you know fumes from a new carpet, though there's fumes in and new furniture in, too. In products, yeah. absolutely. What about having like an indoor fireplace or a, or a pellet burning stove or something like that? That's actually a, a tough question to answer. It depends on what you're burning. It depends on how well ventilated the area is. It gets a little bit into the question of large particles as opposed to vapors and chemicals that may be given off if the material you're burning has been processed with anything. Uh, it's actually much more of a problem in the developing world than it is here in the U.S. because of the use of different types of biomaterials that are burned in the home environment for cook fires and things like that. I don't think I'm going to tell people that they can't throw a log on the fireplace. The age range for COPD then? And is it more prevalent uh, among men or women? Or It's mostly a 50 and up kind of diagnosis. And that's partly because when it comes to the main risk factor, which is the smoking, it seems to be more of a problem when it comes to duration of exposure and not as much of a problem with intensity. So if you've been smoking for 40 years, one pack a day, that's probably worse than being a two pack a day smoker for 20, probably. As far as gender, it's a little bit different there. It seems to be a little bit more of a problem for women in the sense that the diagnosis is going to be made in women despite a generally lesser level of exposure when it comes to the tobacco. So even though no specific factors have been identified, women, if you equalize the level of exposure, women seem statistically a little bit more likely to develop COPD. So I'm thinking about emphysema as the destruction of, of lung tissue. And I Correct. think about these teenagers smoking while their lungs are still growing. Yes. Most teenagers think that they are invulnerable and that the bad stuff is going to happen to someone else. And smokers think that every day. Every time a person lights up a cigarette, they have somehow managed to convince themselves that the bad stuff is going to happen to the other guy. Well, let's talk about some of the early signs and symptoms of the bad stuff. How does it start to show up, and is there pain associated with it? No. Uh, in fact, that's one of the problems. You don't generally get any warning in the early stages. Uh, so, for example, just the other day, I saw someone who came in purely because they happened to have x-rays done for unrelated reasons. The x-rays were read as showing early emphysematous changes and that the person felt fine and came in and wanted to know what was wrong with them. If you really wanted to be specific in the answer for that patient, you would have to tell them, no, you don't have COPD because you're not coughing, you're not breathless, and you don't have any abnormalities on lung function testing, but they clearly were showing changes in lung structure. So that person basically got an early warning where you know, you could say to them, hey, if you don't quit, this will get worse. It's already happening. And therefore, here's your opportunity to make a, a difference where it will never cause disease in you, even if it was an accidental finding on, on the x-ray. 
if that person had not come to attention, then probably over the next several years, they would have noticed a gradual decline in their ability to perform. Walking up a flight of stairs, walking at a vigorous pace on an incline. The problem is that since it tends to present in middle age and beyond, some people will just write it off as, I'm slowing down, I'm getting older. And they may not acknowledge that it actually is a problem. Again, there's a little bit of self-delusion, perhaps, where the person who is still smoking is saying, no, 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 it, it can't be that, uh, I'm just slowing down. Later, they may notice that they're starting to have problems with cough. Uh, they may have difficulty uh, doing even more mundane tasks. They may even have some breathlessness when they're laying flat because uh, now, mechanically speaking, their muscles are having a more difficult time because of the change in position. Um, and hopefully they don't continue to wait if those symptoms do progress. What is the progression then? It's actually somewhat unpredictable, but uh, over a broad swath of time, you can simply say that it leads to progressive shortness of breath, uh, progressive limitation in activity, with several other features that may occur either intermittently or simply occur in some people but not others low oxygen levels, for example. They may notice that they're having intermittent episodes of what they think is bronchitis and is a bronchitis, but will linger for a greater length of time in them than in a person with normal lungs. So I typically will give the example to people where I'll tell them, you were home for a family holiday, one of the kids sneezed, everybody caught the cold, two weeks later, you're the one who's still coughing and bringing up phlegm. So they may have a more difficult time uh, shaking it off. And unfortunately, for those people who have those flare-ups, after a while, it tends to blend together. They may have two or three per year, but if it takes them six or eight weeks to improve, now you're looking at a situation where the person is spending half their year either in the middle of a flare-up or recovering from it, and those episodes actually will cause an acceleration of their loss of lung function as well. Is there a rhyme or reason to the, the flare-ups? Are there triggers? Is it allergy season? Is it fireplace season? Is it uh, catching a winter cold? What? All of the above. So a flare-up generally has some kind of a trigger? Generally, yes, although it's not necessarily something that the patient can easily point to. If you have difficulty, for example, clearing out your airways because of abnormal lung function, the mucus may just sit there, cause it to uh, plug up the airway. Uh, that may allow for bacterial overgrowth where it starts to take on a life of its own. So many times you'll find a trigger, but not necessarily. So when these symptoms are becoming worse, as the condition's getting worse, and your lung function is so compromised, the lack of oxygen, I mean, to the brain, to the extremities, to your organs, that's going to have a possible cascade effect, yes? I mean, yes. the complications then of COPD. Correct. A little bit of that depends on the cause of the COPD, because obviously, if you were a smoker, that will accelerate circulatory disease as well. So you may have bad circulation in your legs or bad circulation in your heart. And people with a history of tobacco use are at higher risk for heart attacks and strokes and peripheral circulatory disease as well. If you're talking about COPD and oxygen levels, that also is true. And obviously your heart and your brain are among your most sensitive organs when it comes to oxygen deprivation. So if the COPD leads to low oxygen levels, then that puts extra strain on those two organs and supplemental oxygen becomes important. But it's also necessary for patients to understand that 
shortness of breath is not the same thing as low oxygen. You can be sitting right here with me right now, have a low oxygen level and perhaps not know it, or you could be sitting puffing and puffing, quite breathless, and yet have a normal oxygen level. So the only real way to know if a patient needs supplemental oxygen is by direct measurement, but not simply by their perception of symptoms. Do you have distinct stages then that you can categorize? We do, and there's a couple of different systems, and the one that is in most widespread use is called the GOLD system, Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease. Essentially, it blends together two important things. A measurement of symptoms, and there are actually little questionnaires and scoring systems that you can use to assess cough, impact on daily activities, and so on. And you blend that together with a measurement of lung function. And it has uh, four stages, five if you include stage zero, which would be the example of that patient with the x-ray abnormality, but no actual symptoms or findings. The problem uh, really is that, first of all, and it's unfortunate, but many patients misinterpret what the staging means because they view it in the same way that they view cancer stages where they view it as a natural progression that is not under their control, which sometimes is true with cancer, but is not really the case with COPD. The staging system is more just a way of describing it so that when you're speaking to other physicians and healthcare providers, they know what to expect if they would happen to encounter that patient. But it shouldn't be something where the, the patients themselves mistakenly assume that they are going to progress and that it's out of their control. It's very much under their control if they recognize the problem and take whatever steps are available to treat themselves uh, early on. That's Deborah Pulmonologist, Dr. Howard Waxman. We continue the discussion on treating, managing, and even slowing or stopping the progression of COPD in our next podcast, which drops the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddebora.org.